Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for June 2020, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Cliff Eisen, co-editor of The Letters of Cole Porter. This is the first comprehensive collection of the letters of one of the most successful American songwriters of the 20th century. From Anything Goes to Kiss Me, Kate, Cole Porter left a lasting legacy of iconic songs, including You're the Top, Love for Sale, and Night and Day. Yet alongside his professional success, Porter led an eclectic personal life, which featured exuberant parties, scandalous affairs, and chronic health problems. This extensive collection of letters, most of which are published for the first time, dates from the first decade of the 20th century to the early 1960s and features correspondence with stars such as Irving Berlin, Ethel Merman, and Orson Welles, as well as his friends and lovers. Cliff Eisen and his co-editor Dominic McHugh complement these letters with lively commentaries that draw together the loose threads of Porter's life and highlight the distinctions between Porter's public and private existence. I began my interview with Cliff Eisen by asking him how this book and this collaboration with co-editor Dominic McHugh came together. I'm actually primarily a scholar of 18th century music, and Mozart in particular. Uh, But when I was teaching at King's, um, I had one really excellent student, which was Dominic McHugh, who did a dissertation on My Fair Lady. And it was about the same time. Um, It wasn't because of Dom, but about the same time that I... I guess I started realizing that I really liked American standards and I really liked Broadway and that it was worth uh, studying in particular. Um, And Porter was a particular favorite of mine. So I had started to work on, uh, well, I'd considered the idea of doing a book on Porter, but thought I need more primary sources. I need more information about the scores and the copies and the letters. Um, And so I started researching the letters and Dominic, at the same time, um, was continuing his My Fair Lady research and had just produced a volume of letters by uh, Alan J. Lerner. So I I don't know exactly when or exactly how it happened, but somehow we got the idea that maybe doing a book together of letters of Porter, which corresponded both with his Broadway interests and also my work on the Mozart letters in a way, uh, would be a good idea. So somehow, out of this kind of complex, uh, the this book came about. Cliff, for those who may not be all that familiar with Cole Porter, give us a brief biography of this incredible man's life. Who, who he was? Why? Why is he so important? Sure. Uh, Porter Porter was born uh, in Peru, Indiana, in the 1890s, and uh, he was born into a very wealthy family, and his. Musical talent was apparent early on, but his grandfather, who was uh, a dominant force in his life, had wanted him to study law. So when he came to school in the East, first at the Worcester Academy and then at Yale and Harvard, um, his intention was to study law, but he gravitated towards music more and more. And he, he was, especially at Yale, was quite active in various choral groups and writing shows, some of which are lost, um, for uh, local performances by students there. Uh, in 1917, he went to serve in France, 
Um, it doesn't seem to have been particularly onerous, the, the, the specific job that he had. Um, so he was based in Paris, and he met uh, Linda Lee Thomas, who was the divorced wife of the owner of the New York Post. They got married, um, and she was extraordinarily rich, and they took up residence in Paris. So he spent most of the 1920s living in Paris, writing songs on an occasional basis. Um, one or two larger works, there was a ballet called Within the Quota that he wrote in 1923, um, which was not much of a success in Paris, but uh, a fair success in the States, that probably for jingoistic reasons. I mean, you read the criticisms, and uh, the French critics are you know, uh, not particularly taken with the work, whereas the American ones, the American critics are. Um, at some point during the 19, late 1920s, uh, he started to get more interested in producing real shows, so he wrote a show called Paris, um, and that started a series of Broadway shows that became increasingly successful. There was uh, DuBerry was a Lady, uh, for example. Um, uh, he spent increasingly large amounts of time, longer amounts of time in the States, uh, where he was building quite a, a, a good career. I mean, he was always known as a really fabulous songwriter, but he wasn't in the public eye to the extent that, say, uh, Gershwin was in the early 30s or Rogers and Hart were. Uh, in 1937, um, he suffered a, a riding accident. Um, one of his legs was crushed and eventually had to be amputated in the late 1950s. Uh, horse riding. For, You're talking about horse a riding, ho- horse yeah. riding accident. Okay. This riding accident, in a way, forced him to remain in the States. His doctors were here. And the increasingly difficult situation in Europe uh, made it unwise to stay there. So from the late 30s on, he was more or less based in uh, the States. And then you have, uh, you know, Anything Goes, which was a few years earlier, was a smash success. And then you have a series of very popular and successful uh, musicals culminating in a way with the, the works of the late 40s and early 50s, Kiss Me Kate, uh, Can Can, and then, you know, in 56, the film um, High Society. So um, that's the kind of biography in, in, in a nutshell. Um, but as I say, the songs themselves... Uh, either written as one-offs, so a song like Miss Otis Regrets was written as a one-off. It was never in a show. Huh. Wow. But other songs, yeah, other songs, you know, anything from Anything Goes, for example, uh, You're the Top, all these songs were immediately taken up by all the big bands and all the big singers, and uh, they were just, you know, night and day was, was a gigantic seller. So Porter had turned his reputation as a songwriter into, uh, you know, becoming a, a fully-fledged composer of Broadway shows. He was the person that I really got into from this era when I was in college, Cliff, because I, I just love the, the deliciousness of these lyrics, which were really adult and incredibly suggestive for, for the time. I mean, even now, let's do it. I get a kick out of you with references to cocaine. I mean, this was like, really? Wow. I wasn't, I didn't think they did this sort of stuff back in the thirties and forties and fifties in songwriting, but this was incredible 
incredibly smart and so witty and really, really sophisticated songwriting that I absolutely fell in love with many, many years ago. Now, now talk about the research that you did with Dominic to to trace uh, down these letters. Where did you find these? Were they in one central spot? And were any of these published before? Well, a, f- a few of them have been published before. Um, there, there are a fair number of, of Porter biographies. Um, what, when I started doing the research for the book that I thought I might write, the first thing I did was to contact the Cole Porter Literary and Musical Trusts in New York. Um, this is uh, uh, housed at a, a law firm that was Porter's lawyers from the late 40s on. So uh, much of the correspondence, not all of it, much of the correspondence from the late 40s on, uh, they either had originals or copies of. Um, And they made this very generously, made all of this uh, available to us. For the earlier period, um, it was a bit more difficult tracking things down. Porter left uh, much of his musical estate to Yale University. Um, they also had a bunch of letters, so I, I spent a, a couple of days up there um, going through their Cole Porter holdings and getting letters and musical sources that were available. Then there were um, a number of sources. I mean, this is the case with uh, every kind of major 20th century American cultural figure is that they had extensive correspondence with all kinds of people. So it turns out that a fair number of Porter letters we found by looking in to the estates of people with whom he was friendly. So, for example, um, there's a significant correspondence with with the librettist Abe Burroughs, who wrote both the, the, the libretto for both Guys and Dolls and Can Can, um, so there's a considerable correspondence in a Burroughs papers relating to CanCan. Those are in the New York Public Library. Uh, so that was one way to, to track things down. And surprisingly, there is a fair amount out there on eBay and from uh, dealers in you know historical autographs. Really? Yeah, yeah. One thing that we didn't manage to get our hands on, which was unfortunate, was maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, the American version of Antiques Roadshow. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Had a uh, someone came on who had a collection of letters, something like fifty letters, between Porter that Porter had written to his oldest friend from Yale, Monty Woolley, and uh, we tried to track down this person, but you know, understandably, the you know Antiques Roadshow was not going to tell us. Um, it was not a matter of public record, um, and we only managed to get one letter out of that whole collection, unfortunately, uh, by stopping the, the video at YouTube. Uh, you can see this at YouTube, this, this particular uh, episode, uh, and <laughs> zooming in, um, and we could, could read one letter. Uh, but that, that, that's, I think, the, the one instance where we knew of a significant cache of Porter letters that were also personal letters uh, that we unfortunately couldn't get our hands on. It's fascinating to read. Again, I don't know how much the general public knows about Cole Porter's personal life. Yes, he, he was married uh, to Linda Lee for decades and decades. But uh, Cole Porter was was uh, bisexual. Very much is that the way to put it? Was he primarily gay? How, how would you how would you describe his sexuality? Uh, he, he was certainly a busy man in that department. <laughs> that seems apparent by these letters. 
Yeah, yeah. He no, he was he was uh, he wasn't heterosexual. He was gay. Uh huh. And um, I mean that very fact, you know, that relates certainly to what you said, you know, a minute ago about the kind of witty and kind of of, of lyrics and suggestive lyrics. Um, the thing about Porter's homosexuality is that it's it's given rise to I think two misconceptions about him. One is that he was indiscriminately homosexual, which uh, <clears throat> I think he may have been at times, but on the whole, you can see from his letters that when he formed an attachment and he had real relationships uh, with his lovers, they were very genuine. I mean, he, the, the early letters to Boris Kochno, who was Serge Diaghilev's amanuensis and that, that Porter met in Venice in 1925, um, he was genuinely in love and genuinely uh, concerned in having a, a real relationship with his lovers. Um, <clears throat> later on, it, it's the letters that he wrote to younger lovers sound somewhat paternalistic, but they are nonetheless just as heartfelt. So that's one misconception is the, the kind of the indiscriminateness of it. The other misconception that's arisen out of all of this is that uh, his marriage to Linda was just a marriage of convenience. And yet when you read the letters, uh, the, the solicitousness and the concern of both of them for each other um, suggests entirely the opposite. He was quite devoted to Linda as his wife. It just wasn't a sexual relationship. And she knew he was gay? Yes, she knew he was gay. She did. Gosh, that's yes. so interesting, interesting. What are some of the other uh, major revelations in this book as you've discovered these letters? Who were some of the other people that he was closest to throughout his life? Well, one of the things that I found particularly interesting was um, that Porter does not seem to have socialized an awful lot with... Um, other Broadway composers, like mm. Rogers Hart. Um, his circle of friends was largely the rich and famous. Um, this dates back certainly to his Paris years, but he was always, uh, it, it seemed, well, put it this way, there's no evidence from the letters really that he was particularly social close to other Broadway composers, except perhaps Irving Berlin, which we also found surprising because Irving Berlin doesn't seem like the kind of guy that Porter would have been close to because their upbringings and their backgrounds were so entirely different. Uh, but Porter really admired uh, Berlin. So the, 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 the social circles in which Porter ran were really quite different from the social circles that other Broadway composers ran in, with the possible exception of Hollywood, right? So um, Hall, uh, Porter's one stint, long stint. I mean, he was out there regularly, but, but especially when he wrote uh, Born to Dance in 1935, uh, he became quite well acquainted with a lot of Hollywood stars and studio moguls, and he seems very much to have enjoyed uh, socializing and having, uh, you know, a, a social life with them. But otherwise, um, he seems to have been a bit distant in that sense. He, he clearly followed up and followed everyone else's kind of compositions and stage works, but I, I'm not sure that there's evidence to suggest that he really socialized with them a lot. So that was that was one aspect of the letters that, that came through for me. Uh, another uh, that we 
tried to point out along the way was that although both Porter and Linda were extremely rich, Porter was very independent about his own money. So there are lots of letters where he's asking for loans or he's saying uh, he can't write a show because if he does, his taxes will be too high in the next year and he won't be able to uh, afford to pay them. Um, So, uh, and yet at the same time, sometimes he went ahead anyway. So there's a, 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 he was not so commercially minded. He was concerned about money, but he wasn't commercially minded to the extent that he would let his financial concerns uh, interfere with his desire to create new works. Hmm. Cliff, one final question. Could, can you pin down one or maybe two of your absolute favorite Cole Porter songs in this man's incredible catalog? Oh, golly gee. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's so hard. They're such good songs. Um, for, and, you know, it, it kind of changes from month to month. Sure. I, yeah. I decide. I, I mean, right now, I mean, if you ask me what I might hum to myself off the bat, it would probably be uh, It's the Lovely. Mm. I think is a wonderful song. Um, uh, but there's so many of them, it's impossible to say. I, I will say, and I'll give a plug for a movie, um, I think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the film The Lovely with Kevin Kline, which is now maybe 10, 12 years old, um, as a, you know, a Porter biopic, um, it misrepresents a lot of things, sure. But what it includes is a number of new arrangements uh, you know, Cheryl Crow, Elvis Costello, of Porter standards that I think are fabulous. So uh, if if listeners want to go out and, and hear some really great arrangements and performances of Porter songs, they might want to listen to the soundtrack for De Lovely. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for June 2020. Our interview was with Cliff Eisen, co-editor of the Letters of Cole Porter. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. 